0: Welcome to CyberCast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. This special episode will look back at some of the highlights from our Cyberscape Healthcare event. This event dove into how federal agencies are working to safeguard medical devices, defend hospitals and medical data from ransomware attacks, and how federal agencies collaborated to protect the vaccine supply chain and beat the COVID-19 pandemic. Our panelists touched on common themes. Hackers are opportunistic, and there is no target off-limits, not even hospitals. Relying on cybersecurity basics is no longer good enough as cyber attacks surge. And even as the threat of COVID-19 wanes, cyber threats against the healthcare sector are growing exponentially. Tamara Lilly, Assistant Inspector General for the Office of Audit Services at the Department of Health and Human Services, said she saw a surge in cyber attacks against the department at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: What we saw and found our role to be is to leverage the community, other um, OIGs, as well as our knowledge accumulated through the years to offer that and, in fact, uh, met uh, several times with leadership at HHS to share our observations in the way of weaknesses and vulnerabilities that we had revealed through our audit work so -hmm. that the resources could be applied to ensure that the systems were as safe as they could be, that there were no... um, uh, additional threats introduced, and so that's where we believe we had the most impact and value from our perspective. And what we saw, especially during COVID, was an increase in attacks that had been occurring already and had been increasing through the years against the healthcare industry, which includes includes HHS and all their agencies and components and um, business partners. And so, what we saw was not new. Uh, What we saw was a significant increase in uh, uh, ransomware. I mean, you cannot pick up the paper these days and not see uh, a healthcare entity these days not being impacted, but we saw a rapid increase of that attack during COVID, especially in the early months, DDoS attacks. So literally HHS, I think, reported that the DDoS attack they suffered in March of 2020 was definitely the largest for themselves. But according to them, maybe the largest for any federal government agency. So what we saw that was an attempt by the attackers just to find a way in just to. And if they couldn't find a way in, they certainly wanted to slow down you know, surprising and disappointing to us as a, as an, as a world, the wanting to move rapidly to find a cure, they were trying, in some cases, to slow down the entire process to disrupt communications. And I'd say the third largest area, which is tied to their ability to affect the 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 thing, the attacks that they had was phishing and vishing. We saw a significant increase with vishing, and that's using text versus using emails to send to employees. But a significant increase of those as well in terms of threats being introduced into the HHS environment and its counterparts into another uh, to a point that another um, panel member made. Uh, it's ever so important to ensure that the smallest and the less. Um, staffed or um, those that have not been subjected to this kind of these kinds of attacks or this significant increase, that they were equally prepared because, as we all know, the weakest link is what usually um, is the vector point that gets leveraged. And so, in terms of um, how we help we had um, some audits that were already ongoing in these er areas, well, to assist in showing up the vulnerabilities. And so what we continued to do is, um, and in fact, we opened communications because there were a lot of new executives and professionals that had joined in to assist HHS and may not have been as aware of the vulnerabilities. So we continue to educate them on what we saw as the top vulnerabilities uh, within the agency and opportunities to shore up areas that were more um, susceptible to an attack or as a result of an attack would need to be in place and operating effectively, such as incident response, which rose to the very top.
0: Dr. Grant Huang, who hopes lead an enterprise-focused research strategy for planning, integrating, and coordinating VA resources to enhance an evidence-based care for veterans, said the VA also saw a dramatic increase in cyber attacks as the department oversaw the clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccines
2: VA was really proud to be a part of the efforts to contribute to uh, determining the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines so we had a number of VA facilities that participated we had um, several veterans and staff and others who participated in these trials so i think that definitely wanted to just acknowledge the work that was done there in addition to that from a cybersecurity and other related areas, I think I really wanna acknowledge the fact that one of the things that people might not realize about VA is that while we've had a historical research program, we've been around for a long time, it's been relatively new for us to work with our Office of Information Technology. So they're a relatively new division that was stood up within the VA. And so a lot of the things that we had to do in running the trials was to ensure that we were working well with them, understanding the policies both within the VA, and then on top of that, I think one one of the challenges was the fact that, as I think folks know, there were multiple sponsors of these trials, different companies, different uh, clinical research organizations who ran this. And so as a result, we had to work with all the different groups and understand their policies, their activities, their operations and the like. And so again, with acknowledgement to our Office of Information Security within our Office of Information Technology within VA, they helped us get through some of those issues and to make sure that our veterans as well as our investigators and staff could focus on what was the critical piece which was running the studies. But nonetheless, there was a, a lot of learning that we had to do. There's a lot of communication that had to happen to ensure that we understood the systems, we understood how to use the systems, we had to understand you know, what are the protections. Again, I'm not the technical expert here, but you know, through the folks of our um, Office of Information Security, they had to go through a lot of those activities do the checks, make sure things were working as they were proper, uh, were appropriate. And I think the other thing too that I I thought personally was um, interesting to me, and I think for others as well, is that as you work with private industry, they have different sets of standards and other things. And so with the government, of course, we have our standards that we need to make sure are met. And as we work with them, uh, again, in the context of a of a large integrated healthcare system. There's a lot of complexities that have to be dealt with. And so, when you're an investigator who may not understand all of these pieces and you're, you're being, you know, if you will, pressured to try to get things done quickly, it's not easy for a, an organization or a company or anybody to really educate those people who are not as technically knowledgeable about the details. And then, so, helping them understand that, at the very least, here are some basic principles, What do you have to abide by? What do you have to comply with? And then, again, working with other partners who are more knowledgeable about these details to help them either translate information or to help them understand, I think, was really some of the key challenges we had to overcome.
0: The Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency and the Defense Digital Service were on the front lines of the cyber response to COVID-19. What they saw was a harrowing picture of how cyber attacks can devastate critical infrastructure like hospitals, thus preventing patients from receiving the life-saving care they need. Bo Woods, a senior advisor with CISA, said the rise in ransomware attacks on the healthcare sector during COVID-19 was unprecedented.
3: Adversaries have changed their tactics, uh, and notably, during the pandemic, we saw a huge rise in ransomware attacks. I know that's one of the themes of uh, today's conversations. Um, And ransomware is a different type of uh, cyber attack than we normally would understand or see, which most of the cyber attacks uh, focus on data confidentiality. So exfiltrating information Um, in healthcare and with ransomware, it's a very different type of uh, thing where it goes after the integrity and availability of human life. So if we if we believe in the rigorous scientific evidence that medical devices save lives and that clinical systems save lives, when you cut off access to those systems, whether they be you know PACs or lab systems, um, therapeutics, diagnostics, then uh, doctors are put in a position where they can't leverage those tools to save the lives we know they can save. So you deny that capability. And so therefore... Uh, Ransomware can have a profoundly different type of impact in healthcare than other types of attacks would have, or than um, ransomware might have in a similar case in, for instance, a bank or elsewhere. I think that's been one of the biggest changes uh, in how hospitals have had to to think about and respond to some of the changing um, adversary dynamics.
0: Josh Corman, another senior advisor with CISA, Said the cyber attacks on the healthcare system had life or death consequences.
4: As we continue to see fires across critical infrastructure sectors, one thing that is being revealed is um, the terms that target rich cyber poor. Ransomware can hit anybody, right? Ransomware is the scourge of the moment, and it seems like we're nowhere near reaching the bottom of how low people will go. Right? We hope there was some honor amongst thieves, but there isn't. So we're kind of decomposing this cyber poor concept and you can have three types of deficiency that make you not ready for these because it's really flourished on those that live below that security poverty line. Number one, you could be deficient on information and you fight, you know, ignorance with information and education. So we could try that. In many cases, we have insufficient carrots and sticks or incentives. So people know what to do, but they're not properly motivated to do them or too much is potentially voluntary. And in many cases, too many cases, they're actually resource poor. They're living below this security poverty line. Even before the pandemic, when I served on a congressional task force for healthcare, uh, we saw that of the 5,600 or so hospitals, 85% of them didn't have a single security person on staff. When we looked at these vital links in the vaccine supply chain, uh, we found 66 or so that really uh, exposed a, a massive national security impact, but had no security talent whatsoever. So simply telling them to do multi-factor authentication or evoke the magic incantation of zero trust is, is very flippant to many of them. They can't do the basics and we're gonna need a crawl, walk, run approach. So we have something that's fit for purpose, either left of boom before they hit, hit a ransom or right of boom after they have. And while we were very scrappy uh, to, to warn these hospitals or to swarm when they were affected, we did a joint seal alert in the month of October or November. With uh, we had incredible intelligence of an intent to disrupt plural US hospitals before the election. And we linked arms with HHS and um, FBI and we warned folks, but still you saw month long or more outages at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Even more recently, Scripps has had protracted impact on the other coast. And when there's a pandemic, you can't have life saving technologies degraded and delayed. So just to put a human element on this, um, some of the massively multidisciplinary people we hired included former CEOs of hospitals, infectious disease experts, and data scientists. So while most of us talked about the 500,000 deaths due to COVID, at the same time, uh, our colleagues at the CDC were tracking 150,000 extra deaths from non-COVID-related conditions, many of which are treatable. The top age demographic for those 150,000 extra deaths were age 25 to 44, it was young people.
0: Dr. Jim Jones, Director of the Criminal Investigations and Network Analysis Center, a DHS Science and Technology Directorate Commissioned Center of Excellence supporting DHS R&D, said this rise of ransomware is due to the rapidly changing world of cybercrime leading to ransomware as a service.
5: The criminal organizations are opportunists and they see this as well they they see this opportunity that has been created and so they pivot very quickly. Criminals are not wed to the particular line of business they're in, they're wed to making money. And when they see an opportunity, they take advantage of it. In the case of ransomware, it's a relatively low skill set. Um, some kind of minimal, moderate, offensive cyber skills is enough. And it's easier to monetize. So when you look back to what cyber criminals used to do, they would steal credit cards, but then you got to sell them. And a credit card is a perishable commodity. Uh, They steal Linux or property, they got to find a buyer. They do a ransomware attack and all they have to do is swing a hammer around inside and hit something that matters and then say, hey, if you want your stuff back, you're going to have to pay us. It's all a a one to one transaction. So I think that is one of the primary drivers why we're seeing more ransomware, the opportunity and the criminals ability to pivot to that. Um, So from a business perspective, they're specializing in a piece of the, the ransomware chain or the attack chain. So one group develops an exploit, somebody else distribute it, distributes it using somebody else's botnet, somebody else breaks in and does the pivot and exploit, and then somebody else locks it and tries to, to get the, the money back out. The, um, the, the dark side group example with Colonial Pipeline is a great example. They. Um, the term ransomware as a service has been coined for what they did. They, they developed it, they handed it out. They've got a nice website where you can could used to be able to go grab the ransomware and use it with the agreement that you would give 10, 25% back to, to side based on the, the take. Um, so that, that model is what we're seeing, which has two implications for us. One, they're really good at their piece of the pie. They have the ability to specialize and, and develop expertise. And two, they're incredibly resilient. Um, in a place where we do not want to see resilience, because you knock one piece of this puzzle out and somebody else steps right back in.
0: When federal agencies and healthcare organizations shifted to remote work due to the pandemic, that presented another layer of complexity to an already overwhelming cyber landscape. Jessica Wilkerson, a cyber policy advisor with the FDA, said this shift also created an opportunity for public and private healthcare organizations to rethink how they did cybersecurity. Even in the best of times prior to the pandemic, we had an over-reliance on the perimeter uh, at any one organization. You know, it was always, if it was behind your firewall, you could protect it, which, uh, you know, I I think we've generally found that that's not true and hasn't been true for a while. Uh, But then, you know, there was this mad rush of everything now existing outside of the perimeter uh, just from from the get-go. And so the, the complication of having to adjust um, cybersecurity best practices on the fly in the middle of several other concurrent crises that were happening all at the same time uh, has, has been a major challenge and will probably remain a major challenge uh, because, like others have said, uh, there's, it's highly unlikely that we're going to go back to exactly the way that things were before. So we're going to have to learn to live with some of the, uh, the new normals. The speakers at this event said one big takeaway from the pandemic is that federal agencies and healthcare organizations need to reprioritize cybersecurity spend. Daniel Bardenstein, a digital services expert at the Defense Digital Service, said this is challenging when underfunded federal agencies or smaller organizations prioritize technology that will make them more efficient as opposed
6: to more secure. You have these small labs and the budgets go to machines that will help make their jobs more uh, efficient and effective because they have limited staff, but also then open them up to be more easily knocked down from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, so again, I, DDS is a big proponent of engaging with the, the global hacker community to actually provide expertise, especially to government, which uh, you know needs, continues to, to need to be brought to the kind of forefront uh, of where folks are um, elsewhere in the community and also around the world. Um, in terms of how some of our lessons inform that, Uh, I'll I'll hit again on on what I just mentioned too. this, a a big um, stomping ground of ours is engaging with the private sector for best practices, engaging with the hacker community. There's a really interesting uh, community that was spun up that I know Josh was uh, a part of as well, called the CTI League, which is essentially an online community of a bunch of Cybersecurity and law enforcement and medical experts from around the world, essentially in a Slack channel, uh, that were trying to fight COVID-19 related cybersecurity challenges around the world. So folks were able to offer up connections to their agencies, uh, data they collected, whether in open source channels or or elsewhere. Uh, and there was even, you know, fight disinformation, and there's even um, processes that were built in to help you know, say, here's a ticket, a hospital in this country or in this state needs help, who's available to jump on a call and talk with them? Really fascinating. Um, Is that necessarily a scalable long-term solution? Perhaps not, but um, that was a really interesting and unique um, uh, precipitation from unique challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic and the necessary cybersecurity response to it. And I wonder whether there's more that we can look to in there. And I think another interesting lesson learned and part of a larger conversation, which we probably don't have time for here, is what should the role of government be in helping the cybersecurity in the private sector? Um, I think there's a balance. We can't do everything. We probably shouldn't do everything for a variety of reasons. But I think organizations like CISA, for example, are uniquely positioned to have those private sector relationships to build out their services to help a lot of organizations that don't have the, the budgets that are necessary to really secure themselves. And so I think there's definitely a lot more discussion and should be more discussion about how can we better leverage government not to solve everyone's cybersecurity problems within the private sector, but to help where it's most needed. And it could be both in technology and the policy perspective.
0: Corman said federal cyber leaders need to meet these organizations where they are.
4: We're also gonna to try to like look at more Crawl, walk, run, fit-for-purpose advice to meet people where they are if they are target-rich and cyber-poor. Let's not give them a multi-million dollar multi-year authentication project. Let's look at the most important things they can do for 80-20 rule. And CISA just put out um, at cisa.gov bad practices, we're starting to put a stake in the ground. Instead of waving our hands about best practices that one should do, let's call out the most egregious, dangerous practices. And we just published our first two One of which is that the use of unsupported end of life software is dangerous and it materially elevates uh, risks to national security, national economic security, national public health and safety. And we too often look past and tolerate these things for other equities and other competing interests. But the top two ways that these target rich resource poor organizations are being hit are phishing and hard coded passwords or known vulnerabilities or massively ancient and unsupported software technologies, especially the ones reachable at the internet edge, the internet exposed technologies. So we're gonna have to look at this for meeting people where they are, identifying the parts in the national critical functions that carry the most risk, buying down that risk and having a plan to get them from uh, high levels of risk and stress towards more acceptable. And that's not gonna be easy. Um, so I'm encouraged that what we saw during this pandemic is a crucible to other people's points is what we discovered muscle memory and patterns and collaborations and power team-ups between agencies instead of sticking to just one swim lane or one agency or who, whose job is that, we said what's right for the American public. And I think we can take some of those positive experiments and scale them sideways across other topics beyond the pandemic.
0: Rob Wood, CISO of CMS, Agreed with Corman, saying there's a fine line between how much cybersecurity can help or burden an organization.
7: One other thing that I I spend a lot of time thinking about is is how much how much security at at, at CMS adds either uh, either helps helps people move faster or burdens people from moving faster. And and I mean I've noticed this throughout my entire career. And security teams, oftentimes, like as much as we talk about helping, and as much as we talk about enabling, it's oftentimes like we're still a gate. We're still slowing things down a little bit. We're we're a little bit of friction. <clears throat> and you know, if you're trying to run a race, doing so with a weight vest on is not going to ma- help you move faster. Um, uh, you know, unless you're training, and then and then you you run faster production, of course, and so or you know at, at race time. And so I think the like finding ways to make security simpler and more streamlined such that we are able to actually help people move faster and, and at the same time build more trust with the people we need to have trust with is something that is like really important to me. Because I feel like if, we are, if people can iterate faster and we have trusting relationships with them such that they're, they're more willing to share and be open with us, about potential flaws and and you know and try things out that we're thinking about, et cetera. Then then we're able to just cycle through faster. And I think like that's where you know you see like the magic of you know the tech unicorns and such in, in Silicon Valley is they're able to. Um, it's not that they're able to just move quickly; it's they're able their iteration cycles are so fast that they can try things and. Uh, and, and make course corrections every single time that they uh, uh, that something doesn't work or it's not, it's not it's not optimal it's like it's like the way that the Dyson vacuum was was invented it's like uh, you know there's this there's this little uh, mini like hyper targeted um, uh, you know innovation and, and, uh, and iteration loop that that is really interesting and and I think about security a lot in that in that same kind of lens so.
0: Dr. Huang and Lilly also emphasized the need for tailoring cybersecurity requirements and measures to individual organizations. Lilly said President Joe Biden's new cyber executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity could jumpstart these efforts.
2: You know, one concern is possibly that as hopefully we get to a post-pandemic world, do people just ease up or just turn their attention elsewhere? So in other words, with COVID, As, again, we've been talking about, there's a lot of efforts for federal agencies as well as private partners, industry partners, and others to work together. They were hyper-focused. They knew that there was a particular task and mission to address. But after that, what do people do? Do people just kind of say, well, okay, you know, we just go back to our own ways? Or, you know, will the information sharing or best practices that Daniel just brought up just become less of a priority? I think the other thing, too, again, just talking from a research perspective is that, Besides the fact that I think from a research world, there still is a lot of learning and understanding, you know, talking to our IT colleagues and others and and, and getting to know them and how those requirements uh, apply to research. But I think the other thing, too, from, again, a healthcare system perspective is that there's going to be a need to balance resources, right? So, in other words, the cybersecurity threats and other things that pop up are still going to be there for the healthcare system. Do they then... From a research perspective, think about well, this is now our priority. Well, what about the research that's going to be needed to help inform the healthcare system, and what about the future uh, sets of trials or other activities that are going to be used to help inform the country as a whole? And and again, I think you know when you when you talk about limited resources, especially in the IT uh, context. How do you decide you know, which rich deserves priority and how do they work together? And are there ways to synergize some of those activities? I, you know, I like to believe that from a clinical trials perspective that clinical trials is part of clinical care. And so therefore, you know, are there opportunities then that, you know, that the COVID pandemic brought together that then become less of an emphasis as you go forward? So you know, I hope those are things that, that don't get lost and don't get forgotten, uh, but I do think those are some things that need to be addressed.
1: Realizing that there are so many priorities out there. I think the executive order will help to achieve that um, as we continue to move forward, because what we see as as a challenge is um, realizing that these were and have been and remain to be gaps in our security posture, that these systems are, are key, essential to development of any um, vaccines in terms of communicating between. I mean, you don't do we don't do anything uh, these days without a computer. And, and electronics and connectivity. And when we don't have those and or they're not functioning as they should, it can undermine all the good progress and, that we think we're making and we can make. And so in that regard, in terms of lessons learned and you know what, what lessons we learned and applying them going forward, it is that whole of government uh, making sure or ensuring that we continue to leverage one another across agencies and like industries. And as I'll pick up with Daniel's comments around around um, what is, should be the government's role in assisting the smaller entities, the entities that this has not been a problem for in terms of security weaknesses. So all of those things, um, you know, of course, making them a priority. And as always, the challenge of balancing those priorities.
0: With Chris Inglis as the new national cyber director and Biden's cyber executive order to lead the way, Bardenstein thinks the federal government has a unique opportunity to make giant leaps in cybersecurity modernization and set an example and a standard for the private sector.
6: I think one of the places where government should lead is where it's you know where it's unique, right? The first is around uh, the gathering and dissemination of uh, intelligence and information, and that's one thing that most, pretty much every organization we worked with throughout Operation Warp Speed was hoping and expecting from us, hey, if you see any specific indicators that uh, should be of interest to us, please let us know so we can comb our networks to see if they might be they might show up. And that's one thing that government has a unique uh, angle on. And then I think the other big bit is around policy and incentives. And again, we talked about it a little bit already. One of the reasons why the state of cybersecurity is where it is in the healthcare industry, and I think just broadly across the private sector, is that it's still not a really big incentive, a significant incentive for the C-suite. And I think government plays a role in that, in the same way that you know we we have the you know we talk about FDA and medical devices, or even there's lots of analogies, uh, seatbelts in cars, et cetera, et cetera, um, whether through regulation or policy or other incentives. We need to get companies to take this seriously. We need to get companies to invest and not say how much, how little can we spend on our cybersecurity budget so we can maximize profits. Um, it, government should lead and has to lead because no one else can really do that.
0: These are just a few of the amazing insights from speakers at our CyberScape Healthcare event. To learn more about the event and watch the recorded panels, point your browser to governmentciomedia.com/event slash cyberscape dash health dash care. To hear more about federal cybersecurity stories and trends, subscribe to CyberCast. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. CyberCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.